How did a little girl from the South Bronx become the most senior advisor to the president on issues of arms control and non-proliferation? Who does the president call on to negotiate with the international community on ways to deter and prevent a nuclear war? Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, answers these questions and more. I'm your host, Hadil Ali. Welcome to Driving Impact. Driving Impact, an exclusive insight into the personal backgrounds and careers of trailblazers on the front lines of policy. Ambassador Jenkins, welcome to CSIS. Thank you. It's great to be here. Ambassador Jenkins, what did 10-year-old Bonnie Jenkins want to be when she grew up? Oh, uh, well, um, the one, I, I don't know if I knew exactly what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. but one thing that I was always very interested in is public service. Mm -hmm. um, I was always very interested in doing, working for the government and working on issues that are bigger than myself. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I knew I wanted to do was to get into gov government service um, and one day work in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Did you see examples of that, friends, family growing up? Um, well, actually, you know, my parents did not work in public service, mm -hmm. though my mom uh, was a daycare worker, so mm -hmm. she worked with, with children. But when I was young and as I got older, one of the things that happened was in my junior high school, mm -hmm. if you were on the honor roll, you got a free trip to Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And so I made sure I was on the honor roll every year, so I wanted to go to Washington. And, you know, coming from the South Bronx, coming to Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., seeing all the, you know, all the monuments, all the buildings, I just kind of fell in love with it. And so it was a great combination for my young interest in public service. And that's what I really solidified that I really wanted to work in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And you've said that before, Ambassador, that you got into the fields of weapon of mass destruction completely by, by mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that trajectory like, like you said, being a young girl growing up in the South Bronx in the 70s and then becoming a trailblazer today in your field? Um, well, interestingly, as I said uh, a little earlier, I didn't really have a lot of exposure mm -hmm. to international issues when I was growing up in the Bronx. You know, we're thinking about obvious domestic issues, mm -hmm. you know, city issues, going mm -hmm. to New York City issues and things like that. So when I went to Washington through a fellowship program, mm -hmm. I was happy because I was in Washington. I was doing public service, but I wasn't exactly sure what area I wanted mm -hmm. to work in. But I was, uh, I knew enough because I was at the Department of Defense at the Pentagon, um, and I was working in the legal office. And that's when I got exposed to issues of weapons of mass destruction, arms control, nonproliferation, mm -hmm. because I went to a meeting that my um, my mentor was going to. Mm -hmm. And that's for the first time I got the exposure to those type of issues of what they call hard security, mm -hmm. you know, weapons of mass destruction issues. So it was a total change or a total shift from anything I might have been interested in because I wasn't really focusing on those issues at all. And I just fell in love with it. And mm -hmm. I said, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. So there was obviously really no thinking at all about that <laughs> when, I was, when I was young. And I know you said you didn't have anyone necessarily around you growing up that was in public service, but did you have any role models uh, growing up? I always have admired people who have come before me who have dealt with um, extreme challenges mm -hmm. and have overcome them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my role models were people like Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. or, um, you know, s famous singers mm -hmm. who, um, you know, Billie Holiday, because mm -hmm. I used to watch, there were movies about them when yeah. I was young. And so I was always admiring people who persevered mm -hmm. in experiences that I could not even imagine. And 
and we talk about them today because of what we know that they've achieved, mm -hmm. but we don't always know the, all the story of what they had to deal with. And so that's always been, I've always admired people like that when I was young. Mm -hmm. That resilience. The resilience, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ambassador, I think about pivotal moments in one's career where someone believed in them, but especially educators, uh, academic advisors, teachers. I mm -hmm. think about my own teachers you know, growing up. You, and you had a very special interaction in junior high school with an advisor from A Better Chance. Could you share a little bit more about what A Better Chance is? A Better Chance is this great program that brings kids from inner city mm. and gives them scholarships to go to different schools, usually private schools, boarding schools. Yeah. And so um, when I was in junior high school and I wanted to go to a school called the Spence School, my mm -hmm. sister was there. She had already been mm -hmm. accepted as a better chance. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love at the high school. Mm -hmm. It was in um, Midtown, actually Upper Manhattan, mm -hmm. 91st Street, between uh, Madison and Fifth. Mm -hmm. Totally different from <laughs> the South Bronx, South Bronx where I grew up. Yeah. But I fell in love with the school, mm -hmm. and I was determined to go there. So mm -hmm. um, I took uh, you know, the test to get into a better chance and did the interviews, and I was accepted into the program. So they were able to fund my education at this um, really elite private school. And it was it was really good opportunity because it really opened up a lot more doors mm -hmm. for me. Where would you have gone instead if not for Spence? Um, I was also probably going to go to a school called Bronx High School of Science, mm -hmm. um, which is also a really good public school. So that was my second. But I had put all my I put all my eggs really into Spence. Yeah. I had not heard about A Better Chance uh, before this interview, Ambassador, and I opened the Wikipedia page and I look at the bottom and there's a section called Notable Alum. And of course, your name was on there, along with Tracy Chapman and Roxanne Gay. Did mm -hmm. you know that both of them were also alum I, from I A remember, Better Chance? I haven't checked the page in a while. <laughs> I didn't know I was still on there. Um, yeah, I think I remember Tracy Chapman, yeah. but I didn't know about the, the other one. Ro Roxanne yeah. Gay, yeah. Uh, an author that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of her, okay. of her work um, as well. Ambassador, how do you feel being part of um, knowing about Better Chance and what kind of influence did that have on the rest of your career? Um, well, it allowed me to go to the spin school, mm -hmm. which really opened up a lot of doors for mm -hmm. me. But it was it was just a great opportunity because they not only provided you with the funding to go to the school, mm -hmm. they also, you know, they would have people come visit you to, mm -hmm. just to make sure that things are going mm -hmm. well um, at the school and transition was going well. I had a ball. I mean, I, <laughs> I totally, totally enjoyed myself. And I was living in like two worlds. I had mm -hmm. my, my friends in the South Bronx mm -hmm. and I had my friends at Spence, and it was like kind of going back and forth, mm -hmm. which I think um, really um, provided a foundation for me to be able to move around in a lot of different cultures, mm -hmm. you know, which is something I think people of color have mm -hmm. uh, a lot of experience in is being around, moving around different mm -hmm. cultures and being comfortable in doing Both. that. But it really was a, a great opportunity, and I had a great time, and, you know, I've been very loyal to the Spence School. Mm -hmm. I was on the board after that mm -hmm. and doing a lot of stuff with the, with the school after that. So it was, a really, it was a really great opportunity, opened a lot of doors. Yeah. So you're having to almost navigate two worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, where you, mm -hmm. you grew up and where your family was and, mm -hmm. and your school as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, for many of us, that experience continues yeah. um, as well. We talked about public service, and I want to know more about your decision to join the military. Because I, if I understand correctly, I don't think there was anyone else in your family that had served at the time. Is that no. correct? No, my sister joined the Air Force after I mm -hmm. had joined mm -hmm. uh, the Air Force. And then I switched to the Navy eventually. I just wanted to see what it was like, mm. honestly. I mean, I, you know, I, I just, it looked very interesting. I said, I, I wasn't ready to commit full time mm. 
So I decided to go as a reservist, mm. and I was only going to go for about six years. I ended up staying 22 years. I started in the Air Force, as I said, and switched over to the Navy because I was able to get a, a direct commission. Yeah, it was I'm, obviously I, I liked it a lot more than I thought <laughs> I would because I stayed for so long. But it was really I'm really glad I did it. Mm-hmm. It was really it's really I understand the DOD culture, mm-hmm. the mindset of DOD, which I think comes in handy a lot for my job. Mm-hmm. Where do you think this willingness to try different experiences uh, comes from and having this this open mind? I don't really know. I think we're all born with certain mm. characteristics. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always been an adventuresome person. I always sought challenges. I always, I love life. I love I love to be, I like trying new things. Mm-hmm. I, like, I just like, what's the next challenge? Right. Uh, that's always been the way I've been. I'm not sure where it came from. I think <laughs> it's just one of the things that people are just born with different things. And I also think that growing up in New York City, mm-hmm. and, and was it's a lot of it, because mm-hmm. my personality as I grew up, match the New York City vibe mm-hmm. for the New York City pace. And I've always been very energetic, mm-hmm. and I stay very energetic. You know, I always like doing a lot of things. Yeah. So I think part of it was me, and part of it was my environment. The environment that you grew mm-hmm. up in, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, Ambassador, your current title is Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means that there are about seven undersecretaries, mm-hmm. or is it six, but one or two at State Department in total. Each of us have a different area that we work mm-hmm. on. And my area is on international security issues. Mm-hmm. So I provide advice to the Secretary of State mm-hmm. on those issues, on international security issues. And I also lead three different bureaus mm-hmm. that work within those areas. You mentioned being undersecretary of state. and. What's important as well as being the first African-American to be T, uh, which is the Bureau of State that covers, quote unquote, hard security. And this is especially important because historically, this is a space that we have not seen mm-hmm. um, African-Americans in. How is that experience like being the first in, in so many spaces? It means being ready to just deal with challenges because mm-hmm. you kind of go knowing that there are going to be people who are going to do the same thing mm-hmm. everywhere you go, mm-hmm. which is you always ask the questions, are you qualified? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what your qualifications mm-hmm. look like. If you look a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, there's going to be people who are going to automatically ask the same questions that you could ask and ask and ask all through your life. So you kind of actually get used to that. Mm-hmm. You know you know what's going to happen, um, and you know how to just kind of push it aside and not worry about it. So you kind of you kind of go into these, these firsts mm-hmm. knowing that mm-hmm. um, and being the first African-American undersecretary um, I didn't know what to expect, honestly. Mm-hmm. It, to me, it was kind of strange that there was not another African-American undersecretary mm-hmm. at all until, you know, 2021. Mm-hmm. To me, that was a little strange mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's taken that long. Um, but, you know, it, but whenever you're in a first position, you just go in and know there's going to be challenges. And you just it's just part of the territory, and you just deal with them. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is that you get the work done. Because mm-hmm. eventually what happens is the naysayers kind of figure out that you actually do know what you're talking mm-hmm. about. So it's just um, you kind of don't let that slow you down. You just mm-hmm. got to focus on the work and what you got to get done. Yeah. Pastor, you mentioned comments like, you know, are you qualified to do this work? Do these comments bother you at all? Nope, not anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, like like I was saying, after a while you just get used to it. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, you know, it, it's interesting. It's, it's two things about it. One, you you, you know what's going to happen, so you don't, and not mm-hmm. everybody's like that, mm-hmm. apparently. Fortunately, mm-hmm. but one you know it's going to happen, and so you just deal with it. On the other hand, people tend to underestimate what mm-hmm. you can do. 
and you kind of use that to your advantage in a way because you know you, everybody knows what they're capable of mm -hmm. and everybody should through time through years learn what they're capable of mm -hmm. and believe in themselves yeah. and the most important thing is believing in yourself and knowing what you've accomplished because okay. you know your own history. Mm -hmm. So people may approach you and they may not know your history mm -hmm. or they may have read your history, but they still think that they know more mm -hmm. because, like I said, they want to put you in a certain category. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you can always tell when that's happening. You can always mm -hmm. tell the people who are doing mm -hmm. that. It's not that hard to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and you just keep doing your work. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they figure out, wow, this person really does know what they're mm -hmm. doing, you're kind of already down the road doing what you got to do. Two steps ahead. So, you know, I, you know the game, mm -hmm. you know the, you know mm -hmm. the road show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you just do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're right in the fact that it starts from within, knowing one's worth first and foremost. Because eventually you have to, that's, that's the most important thing because... There will always be people mm. who always want to doubt you. There's always mm -hmm. going to be people that want to put their own prejudices on you mm -hmm. or their own beliefs mm. on you and want you to carry that mm -hmm. around. And mm -hmm. it's just like, look, I know what I can do. Mm -hmm. I've been, I, I live it myself all my life. I've accomplished <laughs> things that you have no idea I've accomplished. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't come from the South Bronx to be the undersecretary because I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So, right. but you have, but people have to always believe in themselves mm -hmm. and know what they can do. And don't let people's own perceptions right. interfere at all mm -hmm. with that. You just got to push it aside and you just got to keep doing what you got to do. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, uh, especially within spaces of women of color, saying, I feel like I have to work twice as hard, at least, uh, mm -hmm. um, to, prove, my, to yep. prove myself. Ambassador, you have achieved many, many academic degrees. I'm going to try to recap all of them. Tell me if I if I got them all right, a PhD, an LLM, an MPA, a JD, and a BA. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to pursue so many of these degrees? Was it a love of learning or beyond that as well? Um, I love school. I've always loved, loved mm -hmm. to learn, as you said. I love to learn. I love school. I like the challenges. Mm -hmm. I like the environment, the mm -hmm. education environment. I love being on college campuses mm -hmm. because um, just the curiosity that, that permeates the whole place. So I've always just just wanted to be in school just mm -hmm. to learn more, mm -hmm. and I like the environment. But I've also, you know, wanted to to learn more about specific things. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I got my master's in law in international comparative law mm -hmm. because I was working in international mm -hmm. law. I hadn't taken international law mm -hmm. when I was a JD student. Mm -hmm. So I did that because I wanted to learn more about my craft. Mm -hmm. And then I got the PhD, also international comparative, mm -hmm. but in the policy side, mm -hmm. which is a good complement to mm -hmm. the master's in law. Uh, on the same issues, but I had been working, I was a lawyer starting out mm -hmm. in government, but so much of what I was doing was policy. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go back, I've always wanted a PhD, mm -hmm. so that was a matter of time, but I wanted to learn more in, on the policy side mm -hmm. and the theoretical policy side. So that's why, well, th on theory. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I went back to school. So each time it was something I wanted to do to um, become more knowledgeable mm -hmm. about things. Um, but it's also because I just happen to love school. Yeah. Was it ever also about enhancing the credibility piece? To some degree, I to guess. Some, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you if you if you're more educated, mm -hmm. you you show there's a reflection of mm -hmm. accomplishments mm -hmm. and, and the time and the effort that you put into a craft and what you want to do. Yeah. And for me, it has turned out well to mm -hmm. have had that educational background 
to help me achieve some of the things. For example, the, the job I had at the Ford Foundation in New mm. York, mm. I had to have a PhD to get mm. that job. So it was it has it has paid off in certain places. Yeah, I asked this ambassador because I think about women of color again specifically feeling the need to pursue another degree to to make sure that they are they're credible or seen mm -hmm. as experts within the space that they're working in. Mm -hmm. So, ambassador, if we think about the different nuclear security summits and what skills it takes to be able to accomplish these complex multilateral initiatives. What are some of the skills that, that you're able to utilize mm -hmm. uh, to be able to accomplish these goals? Yeah, and I think in, in, in these fields, whether it's nuclear, chemical, biological weapons or radiological sources, you know, it, it people can come into these fields in different directions. Mm -hmm. So I came in as a lawyer mm -hmm. and eventually moved over to more foreign policy work. Mm -hmm. Some people come in with, you know, degrees in international mm -hmm. relations or foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Some come in through science, mm -hmm. nuclear engineering, mm -hmm. chemists, biologists, um, and we all work together. Mm -hmm. So depending on your background is how you may come into the field. Mm -hmm. um, I've been doing this work for many years, but I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. I came in as a lawyer, as you know. Mm -hmm. So, but I work, I have scientists around me, mm -hmm. and I always have. You, and we have those people with those skills in my bureaus mm -hmm. because they provide some of the scientific background mm -hmm. that we need when we're negotiating or doing this kind of mm -hmm. treaties in the past or mm -hmm. doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so you can come in with, with different type of skills mm -hmm. because those things are needed in terms of mm -hmm. doing the work and having all those different backgrounds there. Yeah. Yeah. And you've um, recently led a few delegations uh, just in the past few months, uh, one recently in the Republic of Korea, mm -hmm. uh, The Hague as well. Um, and then you chaired the 18th annual NATO conference on arms control, disarmament and weapons of mass destruction, nonproliferation. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to the significance of these uh, summits or conferences in advancing U.S. national security mm -hmm. uh, priorities? Yeah, they do really a couple of things mainly. One is they're a signal mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. the international community about the importance of certain issues. Mm -hmm. Like the Nuclear Security Summits, for example, were a, a reflection of the fact that there were a number of countries, you know, uh, at the summit level mm -hmm. who wanted to lift up the importance of uh, nuclear security mm -hmm. um, for um, uh, plutonium and highly rich uranium, which are the two things that you need to build a nuclear weapon, just highlighting the importance of securing mm -hmm. those uh, plutonium, highly rich uranium, but also all the parts of ensuring nuclear security. Mm -hmm. That includes, you know, being parts of treaties, mm -hmm. you know, ratifying treaties, you know, export controls are involved in that, and a number of um, other ways in which we can ensure nuclear security. Mm -hmm. So it's a signal of the importance of certain issues when you have a number of countries get together to spend time to talk about issues. But it's also practical because mm -hmm. you, you need to do these things. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to, um, like the proliferate security initiative meeting we had in in in, in South Korea mm -hmm. with a represented by 70 countries who attended um, and there's over 100 countries who are actually part of the PSI we really want to make sure that you know that there are ways in which if there are weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. that are taken that there's a way that we can try to interdict mm -hmm. and get those weapons mm -hmm. and secure those weapons uh, and also go after the people who are taking these kind of mm -hmm. weapons. Um, mm -hmm. So it has a real practical use mm -hmm. and, and doing exercises. So in case something actually does mm -hmm. happen, you need to do these things in a multilateral way because mm -hmm. it's hard for any one country to do these things. So you have to work in a multilaterally 
uh, meet regularly, do mm-hmm. exercises depending on the type of mm-hmm. form or activity it is. Um, so it's both practical as well as uh, signaling. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Ambassador, as you know, we ask all of our guests to, to bring a memento, something that represents a pivotal or memorable uh, moment in their careers. Can you share with us what you brought here today? Yes. I brought a dog. <laughs> um, last year, I went to an event by the Marshall Legacy Institute, mm-hmm. and this institute is about focusing on uh, um, preventing landmine mm-hmm. um, casualties. They has mine, this was represented of the mind of, of a mine detection dog mm. that they have to also detect landmines. When I was talking about the bureaus, mm-hmm. in addition to the uh, weapons of mass destruction, nonproliferation, disarmament work that we do, the export control work, sanctions work that we do, civil nuclear work we do in terms of nuclear energy, there's a number of other things that mm-hmm. one of my bureau does uh, on security assistance, but also on landmines, mm-hmm. for example. And so um, the event that happened in October last year, I went and I spoke at that, and they gave me a dog with my name on it. And I see, yeah, I see. I was just going to say, I see it has yeah. your name on it here. And uh, not only is landmine something that I take uh, seriously, mm-hmm. I also happen to love animals. Mm-hmm. So it was a nice little combination of this nice dog. So I thought I'd bring this to show uh, not only the work that State Department does on landmines, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, we spend we spend millions of dollars mm-hmm. in. Um, mine detection, and I did an amazing visit in Vietnam last mm-hmm. year and was with an a NGO, um, that the Peace Trees, that does some amazing work on landmine detection with all women. By the oh, way, wow. That was really great. That's impressive. And so it was a great honor for me to go to this event this, uh, and, and say a few words to the Marshall Legacy Institute that mm-hmm. does so much work on landmines. I, I wouldn't have known about all this work, so thank you for sharing of and course, uh, for bringing this memento as well. Ambassador, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about WCAPS, mm-hmm. or Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, an organization that I love uh, so much and I've been a part of as a, as a member, a mentor, um, and I've uh, been part of the fellowship as well. Uh, why did you decide to start this organization in 2017? What inspired you to do that? Well, there's several reasons. One, that there were so many, there's so few people of color in my fields mm-hmm. and, and the hard security, what they call the hard security fields. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I had been in this field for so many years mm-hmm. and it just wasn't changing. There mm-hmm. were just so few people mm-hmm. of color. Also because of so many uh, times I hear women of color who are in the peace and security fields mm-hmm. overall, which includes hard security, includes mm. national security, who all, often say, you know, I feel like I'm by myself, mm. there's no one who looks like mm-hmm. me. Uh, they didn't have a, which means they didn't really have a support mm-hmm. system out there, which means a lot of women uh, would leave the fields because mm-hmm. they didn't feel like they got the mm-hmm. support. And so I wanted to start an organization that focused not just on the hard security work, but on the broad areas of peace and security. Mm-hmm. Um, and the women of color who are in these fields because oh. Anytime there's a loss of security, it's women of color that bear the brunt. Mm-hmm. And if you talk mm-hmm. about food security, water security, right. weapons of mass destruction, uh, human rights, uh, refugees, mm-hmm. you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's women of color who are bearing the brunt around the world. And so I thought it was particularly important that we develop, that there be a, um, a support system, mm-hmm. that women know who they who others are mm-hmm. in these fields. They learn from each mm-hmm. other. So people in food security can learn about the mm-hmm. work of weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. refugees, immigration, you know, climate change, global health, you know, all of them learning from each mm-hmm. other. But also importantly that others can see these amazing women mm-hmm. in the fields. Mm-hmm. Not just young girls 
who may want to do this work and not know others in the field and mm-hmm. then have those mentors mm-hmm. we talked about and say, look, I may not know anyone who's in this field, but I can see these women are, so yeah. maybe I can do it too. Um, and that supports them as well. But also that, you know, white men can see it. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not only just educating our young women, but also that they can see us in these fields mm-hmm. so that when they see and you talk back to the question about being the first one. Right. When they see the first one, mm-hmm. it's not so like, oh, my goodness. What's <laughs> gonna, you know, it takes them a few months to quite get it together. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not so new, and they mm-hmm. can just go about doing the work and, and accept the fact that you're there and that you're actually doing the work. Um, and it's, it was also so surprising to me in 2017 that there was no organization like this. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kept looking around and mm-hmm. saying I kept Googling the different terms to see if there was anything like it. And I said, how could it be 2017 mm-hmm. that there is no organization like this? So I started it and started slow to see if maybe there's no organization like this because nobody wants it. Mm-hmm. You know, I honestly didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so once I started it, it was, it was really amazing how many mm-hmm. people were touched by it and mm-hmm. wanting to do it. And so it, it became something that I really wanted to, to yeah. even work on. I know, Ambassador, for myself, I can say that was the first network that I ever came across where I felt, oh, I can find people like me that maybe are experiencing these same challenges and we can come in a space mm-hmm. and talk openly about these things and uh, and support uh, one another. Mm-hmm. And Ambassador, you've talked quite a bit about the importance of bringing diversity into, into policy in general and the importance of doing that. I want to highlight a, a quote of yours uh, in a paper that you wrote in, in 2006. You said, voices from both sides of the political spectrum from different cultures and nationalities and from different parts of the U.S. should be heard. There must be also a willingness to listen to those who may not agree with our points of view and the way in which we want to devise our foreign policies. Only then we can come to fully informed conclusions. I think this quote is so important. One of the elements that I love the most about it is the different parts of the United States. I think that's something that we often forget mm-hmm. um, in D.C., but on the coast in general, um, and the importance of having those perspectives. I went to undergrad in a small school in the Midwest Mm -hmm. where nobody came to us to talk about these different fields. Now, we're almost two decades later. Some of the same challenges still persist, but we're doing a lot better. Uh, What keeps you going to advocate for these very, very important issues? Um, Because we just have to make sure that the policies that we develop are the best we can. Um, and that they do actually reflect different voices mm-hmm. because we make foreign policies that affect everyone, mm-hmm. not just one group of people. Mm-hmm. And yet, for many years, it's just been one group that's been making mm-hmm. policies. Mm-hmm. And these foreign policies don't always come back mm-hmm. to the U.S. in ways that are even or mm-hmm. equal. And that's not surprising mm-hmm. because we're all not in a room. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for the benefit of all Americans, mm-hmm. we need to be in the rooms of these decision-making processes. One, because, as I said in the quote, the decisions themselves will be better Mm. if you have people who don't necessarily agree and say, Mm -hmm. you know, look at it this way, look at it Mm -hmm. that way. It's very easy to have group think. Mm -hmm. And the the other problem with group think, in in fact, in addition to it, not actually reflecting how those policies will affect other people Mm -hmm. who may not Mm -hmm. be represented, it also creates a situation where everyone thinks they're right Mm -hmm. because everyone's agreeing with each other. So, of course, you want to say, oh, yeah, we all agree. So this has to be the right way. Mm-hmm. And this has got to be the right way because we all agree. And of course, we are we are privileged. So of course, everything we say is right. <laughs> um, but the problem is that may not be the case. Mm-hmm. And and then we have a policy that is a, that represents us, uh, all of Americans. 
And it doesn't really reflect all Americans. So I think it's important, and, and one thing that's been great is Secretary Blinken has been pushing us a lot in, in diversity is, mm-hmm. you know, that we have to have policies that represent yeah. all America. That's the best way it has to be. But we have to have policies that represent different viewpoints because mm-hmm. if you don't, you just won't have the best ones out there. Right. People have to be willing. People cannot mm-hmm. be challenged by mm-hmm. an argument that doesn't agree with their and that's one of our biggest assets, having that diversity of lived experiences, perspective, and thought, but making sure that we actually leverage that mm-hmm. uh, within the policy space. Ambassador, imagine 10-year-old young boy or, or girl living in the South Bronx, mm-hmm. maybe dreaming of a career in, in policy or public service or something within that space. What words of wisdom or inspiration would you share with them? Um, perseverance. There's going to be... Um, there's going to be challenges, and you know, the more "quote unquote" different you are, the more challenges you're going to deal with. Mm-hmm. But also appreciate your difference mm-hmm. and recognize what you bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Bring to the table. Work hard, you know, to be to be to get ahead. And you, if you start out with disadvantages mm-hmm. because you're not born in the right place, you don't have the right mm-hmm. money, enough money. Your parents are not in those circles. Mm-hmm. Very proud of the circles you're in, <laughs> yeah, yep. but not in those circles. Um, you know, you work hard and and to achieve what you need to achieve, and enjoy the ride. It's mm-hmm. important to enjoy the mm-hmm. ride to understand and keep it in perspective with the importance of many things in life. You know, and um, not let any one thing you know overshadow mm-hmm. all the other things that are important in life. Just to work hard mm-hmm. and and find your vision, find your passion. You know, it really visualize where you want to be, see yourself in that mm-hmm. place, and think backwards and how you're going to get there. You know, what's mm-hmm. the path to get to where right. you want to go, and stick with that path. There may be changes along mm-hmm. the way. Doesn't have to be linear. Doesn't have to be linear. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, something that I was able to do a lot of was take advantage of opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you're not always you may not always be in the right place at the right mm-hmm. time to take advantage. Mm-hmm. But I've always tried to take advantage of every opportunity. And once I got something, I always thinking about what's next. Yeah. You know, what's, what's the next thing I want to achieve? And something I'm taking away from what you said, Ambassador, is being proud of your, your story. Being proud of that. Believe in yourself. Absolutely. That's, that's like fundamental. Absolutely. Ambassador, we like to ask our guests three questions every episode of Driving Impact Rapid Fire Style. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. What are three words you would use to describe your career? I would probably say challenging, impactful, yeah. and exciting. Challenging, impactful, and exciting. In your opinion, what does it mean to be an American? Um, to be proud mm-hmm. and to be appreciative and respectful of your history. And what is giving you hope right now? Watching how people both in my job and just watching how people outside my job want a better life and for things to be better and not to just accept things as they are. Ambassador, I wish we had more time, but it has been an absolute pleasure to host you at CSIS. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for your service. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for being part of our conversation with Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins on how she ascended to ranks to become the first African-American woman to serve as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Do you want to hear more exclusive stories from policy leaders? Be sure to follow Driving Impact on YouTube, Spotify, or CSIS.org.